Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, onto the show. Today's show guest is Jason Chu, Senior Advisor of Research Affiliates and Chairman and CIO of Raliant Global Advisors. Based in Hong Kong, Raliant Global Advisors is an investment management firm focused on smart beta strategies tailored to the Asian markets, as well as Chinese equity strategies targeted at foreign institutional investors. Research Affiliates, a research-intensive asset management firm, is the global leader in smart beta and asset allocation, delivering investment solutions globally in partnership with leading financial institutions. For those of you who've wondered what the popular buzzword of smart beta really means, this episode is one for you. Please enjoy. Hi, Jason. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you on. Maybe you can, uh, maybe you can give us a quick introduction on uh, who you are and what you do for a living. Absolutely. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Jay, for the, uh, for the invitation. Uh, so I'm Jason Su, and uh, I am the founder and CIO of Raylian Global Advisors. Uh, what we do is we create uh, quantum mental strategies, and that's quantitative investment strategies with uh, fundamental stock picking combined together. And uh, you know, currently our big focus is in uh, China Asia's uh, and emerging Asia, and uh, we have offices in Hong Kong, Taipei, Beijing, and uh, the U.S. Uh, that's a good. That's a good intro, and I like quantum mental uh, because I think that that is sort of a uh, a, a rare uh, intersection of the two uh, the two larger uh, ideas. And uh, and and you're you're uh, obviously a modest guy. I mean, I know that your background is from research affiliates, so maybe you can talk a little bit on that and how you've spun off. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, I actually founded. Uh, research affiliates be uh, now 15 years ago with uh, Rob Arnott. And uh, so we're probably best known for uh, pioneering the entire smart beta space with the launch of uh, the fundamental index. I guess others know it as uh, RAFI. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's grown from you know 2005 in its infancy to today about $140 billion uh, tracking uh, various different versions of the fundamental index. Um, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, probably one of the biggest success stories so far in my career. And uh, <laughs> glad you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had to, uh, I, uh, your, uh, your work is, is, definitely, uh, is, is definitely prolific. So after your, your work there at Research Affiliates, you wanted to focus, I guess, more on Asia, which is why you spun off Raylian, which is uh, just uh, Asia-focused, is that right? That's right. So um, <clears throat> Raylian Global Advisors uh, was formerly uh, Research Affiliates Asia, and we spun that off at the start of 2016. Uh, and that spinoff is to allow uh, a dedicated focus in creating uh, China, Asia-specific exposures that we can then supply to global pension funds. So it's very much... Uh, recognizing that uh, Asia and particularly China is, you know, it's more than fifty percent of the global GDP production, and just China alone is, you know, 
20% of global GDP and crossing over to US very soon. So I think global investors are underexposed to both the beta and the alpha opportunities. Absolutely. And uh, I think that uh, it's very timely uh, for you, uh, if, if, if not even a little bit late, because I think that it's feeling an extremely uh, big pain point for a lot of global investors to have really a, sp- a specialty, a focused uh, you know, quantitative strategy that they can uh, you know, invest in and, and someone on the ground to hold their hand. And we'll, we'll definitely get into all of that in a bit. Maybe you could just take a step back and explain a little bit about smart beta. I mean, I think a lot of investors uh, hear that term nowadays. You can hear it, you know, thrown around on CNBC and, and the likes of that. And, uh, and many people actually don't actually know what exactly smart beta is. We have had a, a huge shift in uh, the demographic of market participation from sort of uh, the traditional market participants to now a lot more quantitative driven strategies, algorithmic trading, high frequency trading, and uh, sort of fundamental guys are a very small minority now of market participation, funnily enough. So if you could maybe just give us a, a brief primer on what smart beta actually is. Absolutely. So I think there's probably been too much marketing hype when it comes to <laughs> smart beta. So, you know, as with you know, marketing hypes, it tends to make things really mysterious, really black box, and probably more than what it actually is. So I would say at the simplest level, smart beta is really a innovation in the delivery vehicle. The underlying finance, the underlying investment theory isn't all that new. It's really based on the academic literature on factor investing. So there are these behavioral biases expressed by investors, which lead to uh, strategies that could deliver long-term returns, right? So these are strategies that, you know, take advantage of the investor's, you know, willingness to overpay for a growth story, for a glitz name. You know, people speculate with high beta stocks, high skew stocks. So it's these things that are well understood in the behavioral literature. But we're now putting that into a transparent, low-cost index-like chassis. So oftentimes you find smart beta products in index funds uh, or ETFs with a underlying transparent index in the background. Uh, And really what it's doing is it's giving you exposures to these strategies that previously were really in the domain of hedge funds who were more quantitative or more sophisticated when it comes to understanding the behavioral literature. So I think all the investment strategy and theory has been there, has been used by very, very successful hedge funds and investors. Just now, we're making that available through a low-cost index chassis. Understood. So um, you bring up a very good, uh, very crucial point, actually. And uh, you know, it's investing. The craft of investing is such a large uh, portion of it is is psychology. Um, and and so uh, you know, I want to just talk quickly on this because I think that particularly in Asia, where there's a, you know, the various markets have a large uh, retail component to it. I feel like there's, um, there's less maturity when it comes to uh, investor psychology, cognitive biases, and this sort of thing. Um, what, are some of the, what are some of the reasons why uh, you're able to uh, use smart beta to take advantage of uh, broader uh, investor psychology and actually capitalize off that? What are the flaws within human psychology that cause people to consistently 
make mistakes uh, when they invest. <laughs> and, and the one word you mentioned that is the most important is consistent, right? If it's a mistake once in a while, you correct from it, then the opportunity is so fleeting as to perhaps not be worth the time of any serious investors with, with actual dollars they're putting to work. So the question is, how can it be that we consistently make mistakes? So a lot of the research then comes down to um, it has to be part of our DNA, meaning we do it because it's a good idea everywhere else in our life. And so we can't help ourselves, but keep <laughs> doing it to invest it, even though it's delivered bad outcome. So just take, for example, right, um, over extrapolation. We know that is a horrible thing in investments, right? The fact that this stock went up a lot doesn't tell you it'll go up more next year. In fact, it should tell you it's become expensive. But yet, if you ask the average investor, more likely than not, they think that's a great stock. It went up a lot. Mm -hmm. That asset class went up a lot. We should put some money to work. Right? That manager was really, really good the last two years. Shot the light out. That's giving more money. And it makes sense. And we keep doing it because in our everyday life, someone who is a student last year is likely to be an A student next year. Someone who's a star athlete is likely to be a star athlete next year. So we see that persistency. So we expect that to be true everywhere else, except it happens to be almost the opposite in finance. But yet it's just so ingrained into how we process information that unless you are a very disciplined manager, it is really, really hard uh, to work against that human nature. Yeah, that's it's uh, <laughs> like you said, consistency is the key. And it's it really is. It's consistently people always get it wrong. And uh, even even professional managers that have done it for decades uh, still fall for the same the same cognitive biases. Um, and and uh, <laughs> it, it's funny because even as an investor myself, I catch myself doing the same thing. It's like you say, you just can't help it. It's, it's almost part of our DNA. So thanks for that. And, and uh, before we sort of move into China and the region, which is what I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about, uh, very quickly, um, you mentioned quantum mental, which I, I like. How do, you, uh, how, how do you guys at Reliant um, intersect the two uh, fundamental and sort of quantitative strategies? What is the methodology there? So for a lot of people who have been trying to do quantum mental, and that really, I think, is a holy grail in our, in our industry, right? Because you have smart people who can analyze data, write computer codes, and you got really smart people really deep inside of our firms. Um, not to have both of them work together seems uh, suboptimal, but yet it's hard. And I think part of what's driving that is, again, human psychology. There's a lot of ego, uh, when it comes to you know, star researchers, <laughs> whether it's quantitative or fundamental. But because they don't have the same language, there's a lot of misunderstanding, right? You know, quants are all about statistics and data, not so much about how the company actually work. Uh, and fundamental researchers are all about deep dives into the management, the company, supply chain, and industry. And to them, to say law of large number works on average, to them is really irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at, at our shop, uh, a lot of this helping both sides understand what is the other side doing that adds value that you yourself probably aren't doing right now and could either one benefit by saying, oh, this way of thinking about companies from a fundamental perspective could be modeled quantitatively. So mm-hmm. I can now use data to inform me whether on average it's true or is it better than average. 
And if there's things you can model, then of course, you don't want your portfolio and your target weights to reflect only things you can model because there's so many risks that you can't model. Wouldn't it be a good idea to say, hey, here's someone else who can deal with things that I cannot model and who can qualitatively risk manage my portfolio and override my weights within some guidance. And I think it just, take, it just takes time for both sides to trust that each side is really helping, mm-hmm. helping them create better models. And also in cases where a model can't be created, helping them invest better by complementing their gaps. Right. It's really interesting because, um, yeah, I was just thinking about how, when you talk about extrapolation as one of the cognitive biases or flaws, uh, that happens even for, say, fund-to-fund investors. When they're looking at like a, a hedge fund manager who's had maybe you know, a couple of years of good track record, all of a sudden they're extrapolating his return out uh, 20 years and they, they think that you know, maybe they found the next uh, big winner. Um, and so I think one of the, the challenges, uh, which is why your strategy is very interesting, is because at the end of the day, all sort of fundamental type managers, uh, it's, it's, it's still you're betting on a human, a very large human component or element to it. And so um, even if someone demonstrates a long track record of successful investing, um, you know, there's always the, the outlier, which is maybe the manager is going through a divorce or maybe uh, some, a tragedy happens. And then these sort of things, it's always a risk. Uh, that that you have to take into account when you're betting on a manager. Um, so I definitely uh, appreciate the uh, the quantitative side uh, to that to, to your strategy. So let's uh, let's move into the region now, um, where where you you have your expertise. Um, let's talk about Asia, China in general. There's a lot of investors out there, both on the institutional level and the individual level, that are, are still very in the dark with what's going on out here in Asia. Um, and it's, uh, you know, other than, I think, other than Donald Trump, the second most uh, talked about thing in the, is the markets is probably Asia and China and where the growth is and how do you get involved. Uh, a lot of people are on the sidelines because they don't have people like Jason Chu from Reliant that they can, they can call, pick up the phone and call and, and ask what's going on and how do I get involved. So um, let's give a brief uh, background on overview of what the markets look like out here. And then we can go into some strategies on how investors can take advantage of it. Absolutely. When you think about Asia, and then again, let's be specific. Let's talk about the biggest component of Asia, you know, basically greater China, you know, mm-hmm. all the satellite economies that surrounds China. The two things you really want to pay attention to is one, the beta component, and the other one is the alpha component. The beta component, if you're just going to passively ride that wave, it's an interesting beta, right? It's a beta that contains a lot of growth. Where else are you going to buy growth? Right? And buy growth that has such large capacity. And because right now, uh, China isn't as globally integrated when it comes to its financial market, the correlation between uh Chinese Asians and the rest of global major indices is actually really low. It's only about mm-hmm. 0.3. So from a beta perspective, you have diversification, then you have really this ability to buy growth. What's even more interesting, of course, is the alpha component. When you think about alpha, alpha has to come from someone, right? It's a zero-sum game. So, <laughs> uh, anytime you think about excess performance, the most important question isn't how are you going to win? The most important question is who is going to lose? <laughs> That's right. You can't answer that, right? It's like you go into a poker room. If you can't identify instantly 
who is likely um, the loser in this poker game, it's probably you. Yeah. So you go into China, and instantly you are you are comforted by the fact that ninety percent of all trades in uh, China, uh, these trades are placed by essentially retail investors who are not very uh, sophisticated, who probably operate based on bad information, stale information, completely public information that they confuse as sort of useful private information. So mm. chances are um, willing losers on the other side of your trade, and, and that's a pretty good deal, right? On the other side of your trade is not Goldman Sachs, right? It's now Renaissance <laughs> technology. <laughs> chances are a lot better. That's true. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. I mean, I think when you, when you talk about China, um, so there's two takeaways from there. It's number one, uh, if you if anyone is a fundamental type investor, don't even bother <laughs> because uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, from a fundamental perspective in China. And I know this personally because we've we've gotten burned uh, a handful of times uh, in China trying to trade it fundamentally on a fundamental basis. It just doesn't work. I mean, there's just, um, you know, the the. The, the way Chinese companies trade are definitely not on fundamentals. There's no transparency. There's no corporate, corporate governance. Um, and there's always, you're always subject to um, uh, government bailouts and this sort of thing, uh, or, or large conglomerate SOE type bailouts. Um, so it makes for a very interesting and difficult uh, landscape to navigate in. Um, and, uh, and the other thing that I'd like to say is uh, on your first point, um, mentioning how underweighted the Chinese indices are in sort of global portfolios. And I think that that is, is actually, uh, in, on a longer term picture, that is probably something that I'm most excited about. And I think that it's almost, uh, it's funny because I feel like some of the managers that have come in and gotten burned by China, they leave and they're, they're, forg- they're, they're sort of missing the forest for the trees. They're, they're, they see this trade, uh, the, the short-term trade, and they get burned. So they're like, I'm not touching China anymore. I've had enough. And meanwhile, they're missing this huge trade of, like you said, the underweight you know, holdings globally of, of the Chinese uh, shares, basically. So if, if China does become the world's largest economy, which it basically will, they are going to miss out. So uh, having said that as a backdrop, what would you recommend for people to, how, how do you play this uh, on a longer term basis? Absolutely. Uh, I think the point you, you just highlighted, which is at some point, global pension funds have to invest in China because it will be included more and more in the major indices, be it FTSE, be it MSCI. And we know global pension funds have to track a strategic benchmark uh, whether active or passive, they just drag into the benchmark weight. So China, no doubt over time, will be 20, 25% of global benchmarks. And today it's under 2%. So a lot of flow is going to come in. And it may make sense for people who can't move earlier to get in front of that flow. I guess you're only going to see rising valuation, improved liquidity, improved everything as global flows, particularly institutional and pension flows, come in. So how do you then get in front of that flow? Uh, I think the big struggle today is, by and large, if you want to buy Chinese exposure. Now, access is a lot better because uh, with Stock Connect, you can now access most of the A shares. And you got dual listing in the H share. So really, from a liquidity and access perspective, things look really good today. So it's less about access of the underlying. It is now really about 
well, what are the managers you can go to? Now, there are mm-hmm. a lot of good, well-known managers locally. And by and large, they have a very local style, very local governance structure and culture. They sell predominantly to retail investors, right? And so it's a lot of more balanced fund-oriented structure with very aggressive market timing. Fees and costs are at the retail level just because they're just structured for a lot of you know, high cost servicing and distribution. So for more global investors who have seen ETFs at nine basis points, competitive institutional products with good alpha and good process at 50 basis points, right? It is difficult for them to look at the local Chinese manager and say, you know, I can get comfortable with that culture, that governance and that kind of fee structure. But you also don't have a lot of good institution, uh, you know, who are operating at kind of institutional quality money management practices, uh, really providing China as a, a, a dedicated exposure. So there's really a very, very large gap from that perspective when we talk about access. It's really access to quality asset manager who you know, follows best global practices when it comes to money management. Right. What, uh, and when you look at China specifically, or, or I guess greater China, but you know, China specifically, um, does it make it more challenging on, on the quantitative side when you're modeling um, your portfolios due to the, dy- the dynamic that you just explained, due to the fact that you know, there's a huge retail uh, component of it um, and sort of, uh, I mean, there, it's just a different dynamic. There might be less data that you can backtest off of. You know, what are some of the challenges that you've seen when you're constructing these portfolios, and then maybe you can talk about some of the overall challenges that smart beta as a as a you know as a whole face, and and some of the risks that an investor might need to be aware of when they're investing in smart beta strategies. And the big challenge in constructing you know smart beta or anything quantitative when it comes to Chinese issues is, as you indicated, Jay, there aren't a lot of data there. You know, the Chinese stock market really you know, became a stock market with some liquidity probably in the mid-90s. But then since then, a number of very key structural breaks, right? You got the split share reform where a lot of shares that weren't traded also had liquidity. So the market became very, very dominated by a few SOEs that went through a split share reforms. And then you have the uh, accounting reform where all of a sudden people started to adopt what is more global standards in terms of what Mm -hmm. they report. So there's a a lot more transparency, and so fundamental analysis start to make some sense. Uh, and then, of course, afterward, you had the explosion in retail account opening, which then created huge liquidity, but then it's all noise trading. So structural breaks in data makes it really, really hard to draw statistical inferences. So for anyone who's sort of empirical in their methodology, quantitative in their methodology, uh, traditional statistics isn't going to help you very much unless you also have a very strong theoretical prior. Basically, you have to say, look, I'm, just, I'm not just looking at data blindly and trying to learn everything by looking at data. I have to have a theory about, well, what's driving this? What's the mechanism for prices and mistakes in prices? And so a lot of us then starting with good theory about uh, the investor behavior. Mm. Uh, now, the good thing is Chinese investors aren't all that different, right? So we, you know, we just gamble a lot and we do things that are not very sensical when it comes to investing. But it happens not to be true. So apparently we all like the Irish uh, when you look at the data. Uh, 
So really, when you look at all uh, retail investors, uh, by and large, you know, uh, using the stock market as a way to gamble socially, right? It's more socially acceptable mm-hmm. way of gambling. It creates community when you talk about stock buying into. Uh, it's really more entertainment than it is investing. You mm-hmm. see that whether it's American retail investors, uh, you know, there's a huge data set that actually studies the IRAs, which is kind of funny. Um, uh, you, you see the study that, that looks at, you know, uh, Taiwan, uh, you know, uh, Koreans, uh, Japanese behaviors from, from, you know, two decades ago. Retail investors all seem very similar. So fortunately, we have really, really solid data um, behaviors. And once you start with that solid data and research, and you can say, okay, well, China is different from really a governance tax institution's mm-hmm. perspective. So how do the two interact to then you know, generate predictions about how prices are going to move? So really, if you're able to adopt that process, then you are able, again, to make good quantitative predictions. Again, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noisy market. So like you say, um, uh, you, know, you, you have to uh, adjust for the fact that there are a lot of sort of you know, bubbles that run long time before fundamental and rationality kicks in. So you got to be prepared for dealing with that. Uh, but other than that, what you see is the uh, the effects of a lot of these uh, quantitative methodologies are just much larger here because there's just so many more willing losers. And these willing losers tend to have very high savings rates. So they keep coming back to generate even more losses to be alpha for your trades. I, I laugh when you talk about sort of the uh, Asian, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's stereotypes, but it's, it's certainly... Uh, prevalent in Hong Kong when you when you hear just walking down the street you hear people talking about stocks and the cab drivers giving out stock tips and uh, you know classic sort of uh, and this kind of goes into what we were talking about about uh, investor psychology as well classic um, you know example is where when I talk to people in the industry and they're telling me about how their mom's PA is actually outperforming their funds uh, because the mom is is going sort of uh, Peter Lynch, just uh, buy and, and hold uh, coffee can type investing versus them being an active manager that's doing it professionally for a living. And the mom's performance is beating theirs. Um, classic. Uh, so so let's talk about um, if, if, uh, if, if, if I'm an investor, uh, institutional investor, and I come to Radiant and I'm looking for a, a solution for exposure into Asia, do you guys have... Uh, sort of model portfolios or is it sort of bespoke uh, based on tailored to the client's needs and how do you go about setting that up? So for the largest institutions and really, you know, when, when, you know, when, when I uh, work with uh, large sovereign wealth clients, uh, we tend to go with a more bespoke approach because when you're large enough, first of all, uh, your needs are just different mm-hmm. and your cost structure and the kind of money you put to work and therefore the capacity that you require are different. So we tend to, work in a very collaborative strategic partnership to bespoke products. Now for many other pension funds, you know, that kind of service to them is actually not desired because they're very busy people. They don't want to sit down and, you know, spend a lot of time helping you understand their needs. Their needs are, you know, in some sense, a bit more um, cookie cutter, a bit more similar. And so mm-hmm. they're looking for good products that fit exposure they need. In that case, when we have, um, you know, fairly standard uh, segregated account services, uh, and, uh, and again, you know, uh, at size, we're willing to, uh, then, then create funds, uh, funds is sort of an easier format for them. Right. 
Um, and I, I wonder if there's if there's potentially a way that uh, some smaller investors or you know family off, smaller family offices or or even high net worth down the line would be able to participate in some of your strategies. I mean, is it you're just catering to institutions right now? Is that right? We yes, uh, up to this point, primarily uh, institutions, sophisticated institutions, um, but. Um, I think what we're discovering is in Asia, when it comes to uh, family offices, um, you know, Asia is, is uh, you know, one of the most affluent places. And so family offices in Asia um, sometimes, you know, are, are perhaps a even larger asset owner than some of the institutions. So we're definitely broadening out. And I know for these family offices, uh, funds are still the preferred vehicles. So we are definitely exploring and uh, looking into creating cost-effective funds. So, you know, for us, the biggest thing is how can we create a vehicle that is cost-effective? Uh, and, un, you know, un, unless we can get to a certain size where the fund can be cost-effective for the client, we certainly wouldn't want to create a structure that's going to have a lot of slippage and cost embedded, and, and that's going to hurt client outcome. I think, uh, I think there's an interesting so the the Asian family office is is uh is an interesting topic because um because it's it has such a short history you know when you talk about family offices people usually think about like the Rockefellers or the Kennedys right and because of the rapid uh, wealth accumulation that we've witnessed here in Asia over just the last decade or two all of a sudden there's a lot of these family offices but again it's it's kind of like how you were talking about the managers in in China so they'll they're all of a sudden they're sitting on a large amount of money they don't know what to do with it and so first you know the first instinct is i'm going to put the money to work oh i think i can figure this out myself you know i'm, I'm in asia and then uh you know they fall prey to the the retail sort of mentality and maybe they lose a little bit of money and then so they they take a next step which is okay i don't know what i'm doing let me go to one of the the, the big guys that i can trust and i'll put my money with them but again most of those guys are going to be western of you know based institutions so i think there's a huge opportunity for you jason uh, because i think finally they're going to come around and be like okay those guys actually don't know what they're doing either let's find a manager that is on the ground here one of us uh you know someone that i can trust speaks the language looks like me and uh, and, and give him my money so um, so I think it's going to be very interesting. Uh, like you say, there's going to be a, there's a lot, there's a huge, uh, opportunity because there is a lot of, of, uh, of sort of this family offices, uh, popping up now in Asia, um, which, which could be quite interesting. Um, so, so on a broad strokes level for, uh, investors, what are your sort of five to 10 year, what's your five to 10 year outlook on the region? Uh, you know, there's, it's hard, uh, for, again, this feeds into the retail mind, you know, I mean, it's, it seems like, especially where we're sitting at in the markets, given the valuations right now, uh, you know, across the board, it's hard to not to kind of tune out the macro, uh, news flow that always tends to plague investors psychology. Same thing with China. You hear about China and, you know, are, are we in a banking crisis? Is there, uh, are we, you know, is there debt issues? Um, is there currency issues? As, on a whole, I think uh, my view is that China will be okay. Uh, they uh, certainly are going through some growing pains. What's your view five, ten years out from here? Uh, my view is when you're looking at China, when you look at the region, uh, you got to first and foremost be a buy and hold investor. There are going to be cycles. You're going to be, you know, uh, booms and busts like every other market. 
but as long as you believe this is an economy that'll continue to grow, that it'll catch up to the U.S., its per capita GDP will continue to grow from where it is today, which is you know about uh, you know six eight thousand uh, per capita, and uh, converging uh, I would say rapidly to the rest of Asia, and then converging to 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 the U.S. As long as you believe in that growth story, buying and holding on to it is going to do awfully well. Um, and then if you'd like to do some more, then there's, you know, market timing. Uh, and that just means, you know, when, you, when you're at the top of a greed cycle where, like you say, the cab drivers are, <laughs> are, are all stock traders, right, and cab drivers, and then you peel off a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then when everyone's terrified, no one's talking about stocks, uh, you leg in a little bit, and then that's going to add some value. And so kind of, I would say, you know, like you said, ignore the macro because, a lot of that is noise. All you have to believe in is uh, China with its current policy, with its culture, with its, um, you know, with its government's commitment to, to growth and stability. If you believe enough of that will drive a steady GDP growth. You know, it doesn't have to be 8%. It doesn't have to be 6%. We know even a 4% growth. Look at the amazing stock market responses that we get in the U.S. when it's just yeah. 4%, 3%. <laughs> if you believe in that growth, it doesn't have to be this year, next year. Just on average, if you believe that's going to happen, then holding on to the China beta is going to be a pretty darn good trade. And then you can do a little bit more on top of that. Yeah, I, I, that's funny. Um, it's funny how investor appetite has just gotten so used to that high single-digit GDP growth, and it's it's like anywhere else in the world, you're 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 doing cartwheels, like you say in the U.S. Um, so, uh, thanks for the uh, the advice there on on China. Are there any sort of themes sectors uh, that really excite you uh, at the moment uh, in China that maybe uh, investors should take a second look at? Uh, definitely. So, I think the one um, that it's a theme that comes back regularly in China, but I think they generally at the wrong time. Uh, <laughs> so the theme is, um, you know, state-owned enterprise reform, so SOE mm-hmm. reform. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, telltale signs of SOE reform starting to really uh, pay dividend, because prior to that, right, it's always going to be tightening. Things are going to look bad because as you are going through this reform, you're cutting out corruption, you're cutting out waste. So a lot of the government-based spending will go away temporarily. It's going to cool off the entire economy. The state-owned enterprise are going to look scary because you're hearing, you know, news of the chairman being arrested, <laughs> the executive is running off and disappearing. Right, <laughs> going to the scariest time. But then you know what's then going to replace that is you know people who perhaps brought in from private sector, people who demonstrated civil servant success as people of high integrity are then put into place. And everyone else goes, all right, the ship's been righted. We are supposed to do the right thing because the consequence of doing the wrong thing is very, very bad. Uh, And oftentimes by this time, the market is so disappointed with the SOEs. Valuations are cheap. Everyone hates it. Everyone says, oh, I want a portfolio that's XSOE. (laughs) <laughs> perfect place, right? And then the new guys that are put in now, um, you know, I think one of the things that's mo- most notable and people haven't paid enough attention to it is um, now the Chinese government says, hey, you know, SOEs, uh, we want you to operate a little bit more like private enterprise. So we're going to give you the right to issue so that, you know, 
performance-based compensation, right. stock options. And now all of a sudden, you're going to drive a lot of alignments, right? Instead of, oh, you know, this is a dead-end government job with a lot of security. So yep. then why to benefit myself by excessive amount of, you know, whining and dining? Now they say, no, 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 don't waste money. I, I have stocks. I want the stock price to go yep. up. Yep. And that incentive alignment is so, so powerful. And so I'm, you know, I'm guessing we're probably uh, about the cusp of another round of, you know, major, I would say, price correction, uh, and it's all the dividends from uh, the SOE reform work that's been done uh, to this point. So, so I guess I'm going to bet on the SOE reform theme. That's, that's awesome. Uh, thanks for that, uh, sharing that uh, uh, advice. Uh, it's definitely something that should be on every investor's radar. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for China. I'm, I'm, I'm certain they'll figure it out. Um, well, Jason, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Uh, I think it, it was a very uh, interesting and uh, meaningful discussion we had. Uh, what sort of exciting things are you working on, uh, either personally or at uh, Rayliot, that uh, you want to share with the audience? So I think the most exciting thing that we're working on is uh, we're now looking at uh, pledge shares. So it's been in the news a lot, right? You, you look at uh, Le Shi. I, I call it Happy TV. I know that's a horrible translation, but it works for people who can't read Chinese. Yeah. You know, basically what sort of toppled it uh, and then really kind of the straw that broke the camel's bag is just the pledge shares that chairman's mm -hmm. put on the stock at cost of stress selling. Of course, that's what's really out of the fact that uh, it may have been actually a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> uh, you know, and you see the market is really now beating up on firms that have a lot of pledge shares, right? Yep. People are just afraid, right? Like, is there something unsavory going on? So we're able to actually go out and gather data, you know, for companies in Taiwan, companies in Hong Kong, companies in China and say, you know, is conventional wisdom correct in this case? And I would say our initial research by looking at a lot of data is actually generally you know, companies have pledged shares, they do pretty well. So uh, in some cases, um, you know, what you see in the press is the extreme negative outliers and people right. overreact and actually make the wrong decisions. You know, oftentimes uh, the data uh, speaks a different story. So what we found so far is that pledged shares is actually a pretty good signal. It's about insiders saying, I really believe in this company. I'm going to bet my fortune on it. And it's wow. about banks telling you, yeah, this company is actually worth the kind of money I'm lending to it. That's why I'm taking shares of collateral. It's a really positive signal. That's uh, that's very interesting, and it's uh, it, it's it's timely because uh, we might even be able to take advantage of some of the dislocation that comes from uh, from the news. Um, so there, there's two two good themes for us to to uh, to look at. Uh, thanks to you. Thank you for that. Again, thanks so much for your time. I mean, I, I really appreciate it, and I think the audience is going to really enjoy. Uh, what you have to say. Uh, what's the best place that our audience members can find you, follow you, connect with you, maybe learn a little bit more about Raylian? Well, so we are finally going to uh, get connected with the, the 21st century and, and have more of a, a social presence. But for <laughs> now, uh, please do uh, connect me at, at my email and then I'll, I'll, I'll you know, link you to my uh, LinkedIn account mm. uh, to follow our research. So uh, my, my email address is just my last name, HSU at uh, raylian.com so that's r-a-y-l-i-a-n-t.com excellent thanks so much uh and again we really appreciate your uh, your time and your insights thanks jay all right take care okay bye-bye
I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The Jay Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.